You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In today's episode, O'Reilly's Max Slocum chats with Andy Goodman, Group Director of Fjord's Design Strategy. Andy talks about the shift away from screen-based interfaces to intangible interfaces, what he calls zero UI. And he also addresses the evolutionary path of embeddables. In the second segment, we have a special keynote presentation from author, activist, journalist, and blogger, Cory Doctorow. Cory elegantly frames the problems inherent in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and lays out a plan he's been working on with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Apollo 1201 Project to do something about it. And he explains how you can help. First, here's Andy Goodman. Enjoy the show. You have a talk that focuses on something called zero UI. What is that? Zero UI um, is a term we came up with a few years back. To It's really um, a provocative term. It, if you literally take it word for word, it means no user interface. But of course, that's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about moving away from screen-based interfaces to more intangible interfaces, which is being brought about by all the new types of technology we're starting to see emerge, such as sensors, haptics, and so on. You mentioned sensors and that type of thing. What are the core developments that have gotten us to this point where we can even talk about something like Zero UI? So, um, as I mentioned, these kind of sensing technologies, the kind of things that are allowing us to distribute our com- computers around our bodies and around our environments. So we're m- moving away from a monolithic experience, a single device, to a orchestration of devices all working together with us kind of at the center. And I, and I think these, these kinds of technologies, as well as data analytics, like actually being able to do something with this torrent of data that we're capturing from the world, this is enabling this, this technology to really start happening. So it's the combination of the sensors, the devices, and the data? Yes. Okay. Now, we tend to look at the phrase getting beyond the screen or past the screen as a good thing. Are there any downsides to zero UI? Well, I think there are challenges to make it kind of workable. Um, I think one of the issues we have is that we're very visually um, kind of uh, centered. You know, uh, our, our visual sense is the most important to us. So taking that away actually leaves us um, in some ways a bit more um, vulnerable to things going wrong. We can't see, you know, what is an error state in a haptic experience. We don't really know yet. So um, it's possible that we're setting ourselves a lot of design challenges that we don't know how to solve yet. But I think that um, there's... For me, there isn't really necessarily a downside. It's about whether people want to adopt these kind of more ambient types of technologies. Mm. Wearables, do you feel that they're simply a step along the line toward embeddables? Well, it's interesting you pick up on that term because I've actually talked about that extensively. And in fact, um, I wrote a chapter for the uh, Mm -hmm. Emerging Technology book around that. Uh, For me, that was a very kind of a speculative um, talk, but actually it was interesting today, Corey Doctorow talked about um, us living inside computers mm-hmm. and computers living inside us. Um, and I think that that's actually, um, I, I think it is an evolutionary path. I think we already have machines inside us, pacemakers, artificial hips. Um, as we miniaturize technology, I, I can only see it going in one direction where we actually start to put computational um, devices inside us, um, even bioengineered devices mm-hmm. and things like that. So um, I think it will it will happen. Um, I don't think it will supersede wearables like before. It will always complement, add, it'll be additional to existing technology. So the Fitbit I'm wearing right now will not necessarily be inside of my wrist. Well, hey, maybe there'll maybe. be a very tiny little sensor, but certainly, you know, we're people are working now on um, 
on um, transfers that have circuitry in them. So you can actually apply it directly to your skin and it'll be much more unobtrusive right. and it'll do just the same. In fact, even more kinds of sen sensing than, than, than a current you know, wearable can do. What's the single biggest design issue that you're encountering right now? I think right now we're, we're at a kind of inflection point. We're moving into a third wave. You know, the Internet of Things, it, you know, it's, 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 it's been dubbed by, you know, uh, the general populace, let's say, but um, or at least technologists. Um, and I think that we're, whenever you get to an inflection point, to a, ch a change in technology, I think you get a lot of uncertainty. No one really knows which direction to go. If you ask people now, where, where is their most important focus um, with technology it's quite you know i think you get a lot of different answers there's no there's no real clarity you know mobile is well established what's next i think people really want to know what's next related to that what was the biggest issue you were encountering five years ago i think five years ago it was actually bandwidth for really? mobile devices yeah. you know we were designing sophisticated services when when 3g wasn't well established you know when actually it was really expensive to get data into devices and without that um, the services that we were trying to design there or, or put out there and maybe even the computational power of the devices themselves the ability to display smooth animations and so on wasn't as good as it is now so we were kind of ahead of the technology curve of what we were trying to do in a way we're in a similar position now but with a different different platforms what's your take on the phrase internet of things positive negative i think it's a, a phrase from a highly technological point of view um, it's not just about things of course it's about people as well and actually at Fjord we've got our own version we call it living services and we feel this captures the idea much more um, holistically because it's not just things connected together it's people environments um, vehicles you know it's it's an orchestration of all these different things together and to us that means it's a living service a service that can adapt and modify in real time to what an individual user might want do you think that that term's just kind of an interim thing that will eventually just it'll either be living services or just internet or something along those lines probably i think it because it's novel we need to label it and then over time as technology becomes um, normalized you actually stop referring to it as anything it's just part of the furniture right. you know we don't marvel at the fact that you can pick up um, a device and talk to someone along this you know we don't talk about <laughs> sure, the wonder right. of telephony anymore right, it right. just it's there like water you know like air so so yeah i think it will it will uh, we'll stop needing a label for it probably at some point last question for you what people or projects are you following these days well actually it's uh one of your publications um, just recently come out by uh, some very good friends of mine, Claire Rowland and Martin Charlier and, and, and others, um, designing connected for connected uh, devices. And, uh, and I think that's a, it's a fantastic book. And it's, it's great. There's a lot of people converging on this idea of, of how you design. Go, um, Golden Krishna also wrote a book called No Interface um, a couple of years ago. It seems like there's quite a lot of people kind of heading in this direction, trying to define what this new territory is, and we're, we're pleased to be part of that, I think. Okay. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. You can reach Andy through his Twitter handle, at Goodmania. Now, here's Cory Doctorow. So the Internet of Things is being born with a, a kind of throwback business model. It's the uh, inkjet printer cartridge business model. Increasingly, our intelligent devices are being outfitted with software locks 
that are intended to keep you locked within a single ecosystem and intended to ensure that the ISVs, the software providers, and the other suppliers uh, that can supply that platform only supply it through a single channel controlled by the people who created the platform, only, can, only supply it through their software store or through their hardware store. It's digital rights management for stuff. And it must be said that nobody who's buying stuff wants this. They may buy it in spite of it, but no one buys it because of it. No one ever woke up in the morning and said, gosh, I wish there was a way I could do less with my books. I wish that there were fewer vendors allowed to sell stuff into this uh, uh, platform I've just installed in my home. I wish that there were fewer places to buy consumables for for my implanted medical device. After all, when Keurig introduced their, uh, their locked-in pods for their new coffee machines, their sales dropped by 25%. In normal markets, when you add things to your products that reduce their value, you lose customers and, and uh, other companies rush in to fill the vacuum. They make products that uh, uh, undo the damage you've done to your own platform. That's what happened after all with inkjet cartridges. There's a kind of equilibrium now between the proprietary inkjet cartridges and the third-party inkjet cartridges where they cost nearly the same amount and the difference represents a kind of certainty that you're getting real HP ink or uh, ink from a third party. But there's something different about the marketplace that we have today. It's, it's not like the normal marketplaces that we have in other product realms because there's an old bit of copyright law on the statute books, the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act that has a provision that makes it a felony punishable by up to five years in prison and $500,000 in fines on first offense for removing a software lock, even if you're removing that software lock for a legitimate purpose, for, for a reason that you're allowed to do otherwise. And this is a bad idea. And it's a bad idea for some pretty obvious reasons, that it's not in your interest as someone who's bought something to have it be a felony for someone uh, to make a third-party product that plugs into the thing you've bought that you want to add to it. That's, that's clearly uh, an invitation to a kind of moral hazard to rip us off, to, to, to uh, uh, screw us on the margins for our consumables. But it's also uh, particularly deadly and particularly dangerous and particularly of moment because in order to preserve the software locks integrity, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act makes it a felony to disclose information about defects, errors, and vulnerabilities in systems that have software locks. So if there's a bug in a system that you own and rely on, it's against the law to tell you about that bug, because if you knew about that bug, it might help you jailbreak the system. But of course, uh, bugs in your devices aren't just ways to jailbreak them, they're also ways to compromise them. If an attacker can leverage a bug in a device that you own, to install malware, and if that device is already designed to treat you as an attacker and hide what it's doing from you in privileged modes that you're not supposed to be able to see or terminate, well then that attacker has enormous power over you and can wreak unbelievable harm against you. Um, crimeware, spyware, and malware run amok in privileged modes that are designed into our devices. Now this is vital in security because we really only have one experimental methodology for figuring out whether or not we have good security, and that's disclosure. That's telling people about mistakes they've made. And to understand why, you need to take a quick tour of the last 700 years or so of, uh, of thinking in science and technology. 
So uh, before we had modern science, we had a thing that looked a lot like science called alchemy. And um, alchemists did a lot of what scientists did. They would formulate an, an hypothesis about uh, uh, some natural phenomenon in the world. They would formulate an experiment and they would test their hypothesis. But then they didn't tell anyone what they learned because they didn't want anyone else beating them in the race to turn lead into gold. And because they never told anyone what they learned, they were never able to check that most common of human vulnerabilities, which is our endless capacity for self-deception. And that's why every alchemist discovered for himself in the hardest way possible that drinking mercury was a bad idea. And that's why for 500 years, alchemy produced no dividends. And then alchemists actually did something alchemical. They turned something base into something precious. They started publishing. They started telling other people what they thought they had learned through their experiments and subjecting themselves to adversarial peer review. That's when your friends tell you about the mistakes that you've made and your enemies tell you what an idiot you were to have made them. And in so doing, they converted the base metal of alchemy and superstition into the precious metal of science. And we call that moment the Enlightenment. Now, in security, just as in every other discipline, the only way that we have to find out whether or not you are doing something that works is to tell as many people as you can find how you're doing it to see whether or not you've made some dumb mistakes that you're kidding yourself about. As Bruce Schneier says, anyone can design a security system that works against people who are stupider than them, right? But unless you're the smartest person in the world, your security system probably has some vulnerabilities in it. Now, we live today in a world made of computers and not in that hypothetical Internet of Things promotional video where everybody looks like they just stepped off the, the set of Tron sense, but in a, a, a really uh, real solid contemporary sense, we are already living in a world made out of computers. And by which I mean that the most salient fact about many of the things in our world today is the computers inside of them. So think about a car, right? A car has lots of important salient facts about them. You, you heard from a man who designed his, his own car and, and built it and races it. But if you get into a modern car, you will find very quickly that it's a computer that races you down the highway at 100 miles an hour or 10 miles an hour on the 101 during rush hour. And that car is a computer because at every single uh, DEF CON, at every single Black Hat, at every single CCC, someone will stand up and show you how you can compromise the informatics in that car by going in through interfaces as innocuous as the Bluetooth sound interface and then take over the steering and the brakes. The most salient fact about your car is not its transmission, it's its informatics and its security model. You may have seen in the New York Times earlier this year an article about subprime auto lending. There are millions subprime auto lent cars on the road in America today. These are cars that uh, the notes on them were written for people who uh, couldn't afford them through a normal credit check. And uh, these subprime cars are the basis of, um, of loans, or, or bonds rather, that are uh, based on these loans, just like subprime houses were. And in order to keep the value of the bond as high as possible and make it as easy as possible to repo those cars, um, we, the uh, cars themselves are outfitted with location-aware networked uh, governors on the ignition systems that can be used to repo the cars if you fail to make a payment. Actually, they've also got their own sound systems. So if you miss a payment, that your car starts shouting at you, you are a day late on your payments, you are a day late on your payments, but eventually they just shut your ignition down. 
And this has all kinds of what you might think of as intentional failure modes, like uh, the New York Times profiled a, a woman whose lease terms said that she wouldn't take her car over the county line. And one day she drove her kids out for a walk in the woods. She didn't realize she crossed the county line. And when they got back to the car on this lonely, uh, you know, park uh, parking lot, uh, out of range of their cell phones, their car wouldn't start because she'd driven it over the county line. They had, they had to walk out and hitchhike back from the main road. So that's a, that's a, a kind of obvious failure mode, but then there's the unobvious failure modes, which is that because security is a process and not a product, and because devices have vulnerabilities that are waiting to be discovered, hackers have been able to break into car dealerships and immobilize every car that dealership ever sold. Right? So that's pretty significant. Your car is a computer that you put your body into. And in case there's any uh, doubt in your mind, this year, uh, the Copyright Office, as it does every three years, held a hearing into exemptions into the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 1201, the thing that prohibits circumventing the uh, locks on your, on your software devices. And uh, one of the filings they got was from John Deere. And John Deere wanted to make sure the mechanics couldn't jailbreak tractors so that they could diagnose the problems with the tractors and fix them without first entering into a license agreement with John Deere by which they promised only to buy John Deere parts and not third-party parts that might be better, cheaper, or both. And in case there was any doubt, after you read the John Deere comments, GM chimed in to say, this is doubly true of our cars. When we said, this is not your father's Oldsmobile, we weren't speaking metaphorically. That's not your father's Oldsmobile, it's our Oldsmobile. And you can never own that Oldsmobile. It's a new kind of tenant farming for everything. And it's not just cars. The 747 I flew here in London from yesterday as a flying Solaris workstation in a very fancy aluminum case connected to some badly uh, secured SCADA controllers. If you fly in a Dreamliner, you better hope they've rebooted it pretty recently because if you don't reboot them every 250 days or so, they literally crash. Contemporary buildings built to a high specification of insulation need to have computer-controlled respiration and climate. Otherwise, they fill up with black mold and become permanently uninhabitable. That's what happened when we shut down the, the computers in those subprimes in Florida, and six months later had to raise them to the foundation slabs and start over again. And it's not just them. If you go into the downtowns of, of any city with a sizable financial sector, you'll see these new Stark Attack towers going up, these willowy, impossible, narrow uh, kind of dock Dr. Seussian Towers, and you might look at them and ask yourself, how can you build something that tall and thin and still have it stand without falling down? And the answer is computer-controlled seismic reinforcements that dynamically respond to wind and other stresses to keep the building standing up. Take the, the uh, computer out of that building and it falls down. That computer is a building that you share space with. You work in a case mod. And of course, it's also true about the kind of Internet of Things sense of, of, uh, uh, of, of living in a world made of computers. If you do look at those uh, uh, videos in which everyone dresses like an extra from Tron and they walk into their Internet of Things house, you'll see that they do two things. The first thing they do is they wave and the lights come on and then they speak. They say, uh, tea, hot, black, Earl Grey, and the house responds, right? Well, what is the implication of living in a house where you can control it by gesture and mic no matter where you are? It's a house that no matter where you are, you're never off camera and you're never off microphone. And the most salient fact about that house and your relationship to it and the rest of the world is the security model for that house.
And it's not just that we keep our bodies inside of computers, we also increasingly keep our computers inside of our bodies. Your hearing aid, your defibrillator, every one of those devices lives inside of your body and depending on how it's configured, it can literally kill you where you stand. If you wanna be terrified, look up the University of Michigan's video in which um, they attach a pacemaker to a piece of bacon and then by exploiting uh, vulnerabilities in its networking stack, they wirelessly cook the piece of bacon. You may have seen uh, an amazing presentation from uh, Hugh Hare at the MIT Media Lab. He runs their prosthetics lab, and he'll step through all the incredible ways that they've made people's lives better by putting computers inside of their bodies. And the last slide is killer. It's a picture of Hare clinging to the side of a mountain, uh, all in Gore-Tex, totally ripped, and from the knees down, he's robot. He's got these uh, robotic mountain climbing legs, but he's been standing at a podium and kind of pacing while he's been talking. And he says, oh, didn't I mention, and he rolls his pants leg up and he shows you that he's robot from the knees down. And then he starts running up and down the stage, jumping like a mountain goat. And uh, the first question anyone asked was, how much did your legs cost? And he named a price like you could buy uh, a, a house on Bernal Heights for it. The second question anyone asked was, who can afford those? And he said, why anyone? If it's a choice between a mortgage on your legs and a mortgage on your house, you'll take the legs. So think for a moment about what subprime lending means when your legs can walk themselves back to the repo depot, right? What it means when our security model treats the computers that are so intimately woven into your daily life that you're not allowed to know how they work. if uh, you're more inter- if you're interested in learning more about this, the uh, Copyright Office has uploaded all the petitions related to this 1201 exemptions process. Jay Radcliffe, who's a type 1 diabetic and security researcher, says that he won't use an implanted insulin pump because his in-house counsel has told him never to look at the informatics on it because if he reports bugs, he might be subject to liability. He says 40% of implanted medical devices have never been audited by independent parties. Um, other security researchers told the Copyright Office they couldn't tell them what it was they weren't working on because even mentioning that they had thought about working on it would expose them to too much liability. So Electronic Frontier Foundation has proposed to do something about this. This is a 25-year-old civil liberties organization uh, that I've worked on off and on for the last 15 years, and I've come back to work with on something called Apollo 1201, a 10-year project to end all laws like the DMCA within a decade everywhere in the world. And we're doing it through... Thank you. We're doing it, thank you. Sorry, I've, I've run out of time, so I'm racing to get to this. Uh, we're, we're doing it through a legal challenge. We have a court case that we are hoping to bring within the next few months that I'll be able to tell you more about. But when that case comes up, uh, you folks have a role. And that role is to start thinking about what kind of businesses and technologies you can make once it's legal to start jailbreaking these systems. Because right now it's kind of a bug, right? We all know people who have to who go out there and they buy systems that are proprietary in one way or another, and we know that they're doing it because it's expedient, we know they're exposing themselves to risk, and it kind of drives us nuts. But once it's legal to start jailbreaking, then every one of those people is a potential customer for something that unmesses them up, that fixes the bugs that were introduced by the vendors in those technologies. As Jeff Bezos once said to the publishers, your margin is my opportunity. And we're gonna have 10 years of legal uncertainty during which if you were to start a business, that involve jailbreaking, it could be something we could use in our court case to argue that when people start jailbreaking, the sky doesn't fall, investment continues, and we continue to have um, a, a world in which technology advances. 
So I'm a science fiction writer, and people often ask me if I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the future. I'm not really fond of making predictions about the future. Science fiction writers who make predictions about the future are like drug dealers who sample their own product. It never ends well. Besides, if you were pessimistic about the future, you'd get up every morning and do everything you could to make technology safe for your kids and their kids. And if you were optimistic, you'd do the same thing. So rather than optimism or pessimism, I'm going to ask you to have hope. Hope is why when your ship sinks in the sea, you tread water until rescue comes. Not because you have a reasonable chance of being rescued, but because everyone who was ever rescued treaded water until someone showed up to rescue them. It is a necessary but insufficient precondition for survival hope. And hope gives you superhuman strength. If you have people with you who can't kick for themselves, you'll put their arms around your neck and you'll kick twice as hard. And we know people out there who don't yet understand this stuff. People who, for some reason, technologists always thumbnail with their mothers. I don't know why they do this. My mother is very technologically savvy. Please stop telling people that your mother isn't smart. Um, but there are people out there who uh, can't kick for themselves, who don't understand this stuff. We need to keep them going because although we haven't reached peak surveillance and although we haven't reached peak control, we have reached peak indifference to surveillance. There will never be a moment from today on in which fewer people care about this stuff. So if you can kick for them, you will bring them along and they will start kicking for themselves before long. Now, I'm going to end very quickly. I'm sorry again about going over time here. I'm going to end very quickly but with a benediction. I don't expect you to be pure. I don't expect you never to make that expedient choice and buy some technology that ends up uh, screwing us over. Because we all have to do it. We live in the real world. There's no choice. You will buy your internet service from a telco that's bent on destroying net neutrality. You will buy your phone or your laptop from a company that's telling the copyright office it should be a felony to learn about bugs in it. There are innumerable ways in which we end up giving money to companies that are working adversely to our interests. And rather than asking you to uh, uh, live in a cave and only use Tor and build your own Novena computers with all open hardware, that would be great if you wanted to do it. But rather than demanding that you do that or lose all hope, I'm going to ask you to hedge. Add up how much money you spend every month with firms whose mission is to destroy the future we want to live in, and then calculate what percentage of that you think you should be giving to an organization like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Fight for the Future, Nets Politique, the Open Rights Group, Public Knowledge, the Software Freedom Law Center, Fr the Free Software Foundation, and all the other groups that have sprung up to take care of this issue, to make this issue the salient one. Ask yourself how much of that, uh, you, how much of the spend that you make every month that goes to destroying the future you will spend to hedge to save it and then make that donation. Thank you. You can reach Corey through his Twitter handle, at Dr. O. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm -hmm.